I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. You are listening to Alone, a love story. And I'm Michelle Parisi. Chapter 12. Half-Life. The Babies. I'm going out tonight and packing my smaller purse. My dancing purse, as I call it. It's the same items every time. Lip gloss, cigarettes, gum, a couple of condoms. Who am I? When did I become this person? The next day, before I go pick up Bertie at the ex-husband's place, I dump it all out onto my bed and get my bigger, non-dancing purse. Remove the cigarettes and the condoms, replacing the single lady things with the single mom things. Snacks, a pack of hand wipes, a bottle of water. Duality, my new middle name. Let me tell you about the babies. That's what us single women call the only available men in this city. Babies. All the single women I've talked to in Toronto from age 35 to 45 have slept with men much younger than them for most of their dating lives. Oh, come on, you say, none of you can find a guy your own age? Where are they all? We talk about it sometimes. Are they all married or in relationships? Are the ones that aren't sleeping with 26-year-olds themselves? Does a woman their own age look like a walking piece of baggage? It's all very mysterious, and it means in this city... There's a giant group of single, super-educated, well-dressed, great-careered, home-owning, vacation-taking women in their 30s having fun, casual sex with guys 10 or more years younger than them. Getting no closer to finding the one, or anyone, really, to have an actual relationship with. Okay, so they aren't all babies. Every once in a while, a guy our own age comes along, but they're even worse. They're trying to find themselves. They aren't in a rush. They say they're into polyamory. I mean, why not? They've got all the time in the world without a built-in biological expiry date. Look, I'm not saying every single woman in her 30s wants kids, but for the ones that do, time's ticking. They are in a rush. They don't have the same luxury that single men have to stop and find themselves. To casually date and not commit to any one person because there might be something better out there. Someone more right. In a big city like Toronto, there's endless choice. 
Everyone can just stay at the sampler table for as long as they want until one day they're ready to make a decision, which is cool if you can, but for the single women I know who want to meet someone and have a baby, the endless sampling sucks. All of these choices means no one ever has to choose. So they come and go, in and out of our lives, and because they're hard to keep track of, we give them nicknames. Okay, don't be mad at me, but crazy guy's back. Oh my god, why? Shy banker. Hot actor. Crazy guy, formerly cute guy. Snaps. The giraffe. It's a dating shorthand, a way to quickly catch each other up. So now that I have a boyfriend, guess who just asked me out? Tall, stupid lawyer? Yes. Uh. <laughs> I'm really not sure how my life became an episode of Sex in the City. It's the weirdest thing. The cake. One morning, the ex-husband comes over to my apartment to help me mount the TV on the wall. Bertie's at my mom's for a sleepover. After we hang the TV, we sit and work on the parenting calendar for September and October. There are a bunch of days that hurt just to look at. The day we got engaged. The day we got married. The day he says he first slept with her. I start to cry. Usually this is the point where he'd get defensive, angry, get up and leave. Instead, he tries out this new thing he's been doing lately. I'm going to be a good ex-husband because I was such a shitty husband. Good ex-husband holds me. Good ex-husband kisses me. Good ex-husband lies down with me on my bed in the morning sun. I'd sworn the last time would be the last time. We still touch each other constantly. He looks down my top or grabs my butt I run my hand under his shirt, all absent-mindedly. We hang out at his apartment and I say something sassy. He chases me and I squeal, running, darting around furniture until he finally catches me and throws me on his bed or couch or just pins me against the wall and kisses me hard like it's 1999 again. Then we just pull apart and continue on like nothing's happened. But I feel lighter, if only for another half hour. One day, at the end of this first summer, we're swimming with Bertie, and the two of us splash and jump on each other in the pool, same as we always have. Reflexively, I wind my legs around him in the water, and he swims around with me on his back, like always. At one point, he turns back to look at me and smiles. It's the most real moment of happiness I've seen on his face in almost a year. I kiss the back of his neck. I'm the cake. 
but he's my cake too. The cake, as in, you can't have your cake and eat it too? In the ex-husband's case, he has it, he's eating it, he's king of the fucking cake. Don't be the cake, my friends keep telling me when I tell them I'm still sleeping with him. I know, I know, I say, but deep down, I don't mind being the cake. I want to sleep with him because I want to feel him close to me. His familiar scent, movement. It has nothing to do with getting back together. Everything to do with the physical intimacy I crave. Also, it's way too easy living across the street from each other. Part of me knows they're right. He's getting everything out of this arrangement while I get the scraps. But I'm not ready to stop yet. So yeah, I'm his cake and he's mine. We can't let go of the constant ignition that exists between us, regardless of the harm, the heartbreak. Meanwhile, I continue to make my way through half the 26-year-olds in this city. 26. The same age the ex-husband was when we met and fell in love. Yeah, even without a degree in psychology, pretty obvious what's happening there. The babies, they're all over me. Maybe they can see I'm a wounded gazelle easy for the pounds. Maybe that's the same reason guys my own age don't come near me. I don't know. I don't know what it is or what's happening. But I'm learning some things. I'm learning how easy it is to make shallow, sexy talk with a complete stranger. How easy it is to line up a time to meet for drinks, and then how easy it is to bring them home with me, get what I want, and kick them out. When they leave, I cry, but not for them. I cry for whoever this is I've become, this opposite of a wife. I smoked six cigarettes today and ate a chocolate bar for dinner. God, it's like I've become Bridget Jones or something. Crazy guy, formerly cute guy. Oh boy, let's talk about him for a moment. Cute guy was 26. Gregarious, ridiculous, hot-headed. A Scorpio, like me. In every other way, not like me. We met online, and we started a silly email exchange that went on for days. His grammar and punctuation were awful, but the banter was fun. Eventually, he suggested we meet at La Hacienda, an old dive bar on Queen West. I hadn't been there since my 20s. It seemed fitting. When I walked in and saw him sitting there, my insides did a little dance, which was new. He was impossibly cute and tall with big arms and shoulders that he instantly wrapped around me in a big hug, even though we just met. There was an instant spark, a real click. 
We sat on the back patio and drank and drank. We smoked cigarettes and laughed so much my face hurt. He could keep up with me, my digs and jokes, and it reminded me of the husband and I when we first met all those years ago. When we left, we walked through the crowded summer streets, still laughing. We didn't say it, but we were walking back to my place. He put his arm around me, and I was surprised. I couldn't imagine a guy like him would want to be seen with his arm around me. Me, an old and damaged lady. I'm guessing you know what I'm talking about. The way we sometimes think the world can see on the outside, the way we feel on the inside. So it began with Cute Guy. After our first fun night together, I actually did want more. I did want to see him again. So for the first time, I lifted my one-and-done policy. As summer ended and into the fall, he'd come over once a week, and at least there'd be those three or four hours where I was actually having fun, feeling good, talking and just goofing around like I was 20 again. He called me kiddo, which I adored since I love nicknames. He'd break into song at odd moments. His smile was great. When I was with him, I'd forget all about the ex-husband. But when he was gone, it was no big deal. I wouldn't even think about him until he texted me five days later and we'd repeat. Sounds perfect, right? But it didn't last long. You know it didn't, since at some point, cute guy becomes crazy guy. Here's how. One night, bored, I searched his name on Twitter and found that he tweeted at least 10 to 20 times a day. I scrolled back to the dates we'd been together, and lo and behold, each time on his long journey home on public transit, he'd tweeted about me and the things we'd done. I chalked it up to typical millennial behavior, and since he didn't mention my name, I figured, what was the harm? The tweets were complimentary, at least, and made me laugh both for content and enthusiasm. But it was still a little weird for me, you know? I didn't bring it up, and we went on as usual. But then he started to get a little defensive, accusing me of wanting more from him, of liking him more than I was letting on, of wanting a relationship. I don't know why he thought that. I loved the arrangement we had. I adored him, but only when he was around. He was not relationship material for me. He was a wonderful escape once a week, a respite from my crumbled marriage and my role as mother to a demanding five-year-old. I mean, sure, I liked him, in that he was so good to look at, to smell, to feel normalish with for a bit each week. None of that meant I wanted anything more, and the cute started to get a little crazy. One night, after we texted back and forth for a long time and the conversation got confusing, I decided to just phone him. He didn't answer, but immediately he texted, WTF, why are you phoning me? Like I was a crazy person, like we hadn't been talking through text for the past hour. He broke it off with me. A week later, I convinced him to stop being an idiot and come back. He did come back one more time, then flipped out again. He wrote me a crushing email that said he had no regrets, but that this thing had run its course. 
I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. I let it go. Although I was disappointed, and shamefully, sometimes, I still scrolled through his Twitter account. Look, those Friday or Saturday nights as a single parent were alienating. While everyone else I knew was out having fun or with their partners, I was just so alone. Birdie asleep in her room, me staring at the wall, or my phone. So, I would check out cute crazy guy's Twitter account. Sue me. And then I realized he had a blog. A blog where he wrote a lot about anything that came into his head. He wrote about stupid customers that came into his store, or how he lost $100 at a blackjack game. He wrote about women. Women he named. What they'd done together, how they misunderstood him, the games these women played, the drama... My heart stopped when I saw the first post about me. There, on the internet, a fairly detailed description of me and my assets. He wrote about what he liked about me, the things we'd done together. And he wrote about how I was obviously in love with him and how obviously messed up I was. He wrote that I was a walking contradiction and more trouble than I was worth. For some reason... I was the only woman he didn't name, which I guess should give me some solace. Instead, I got a nickname, a thing I normally love, but in this case felt ridiculous. Because he referred to me as the MILF. It made me feel 100 years old. It was like I got sober in that exact moment. I suddenly stopped and questioned everything about myself and all my actions leading up to that point. All the drinking and sleeping around. What I'd been through with the husband had made me into the kind of woman that could now be reduced to an acronym. A joke on some baby's blog. The Bear We were on the edge of a cliff. This isn't a metaphor for our marriage. We actually were camped out on the edge of a 900-foot cliff. Below us was the Atlantic Ocean, dotted with wild and beautiful things I had never seen before. Sea stacks, pillow lava. But I couldn't see them. For the first time in my life, I was having a panic attack. I'm an experienced camper, but I'm also from a flat place, so pitching our tent on this cliff with a raging sea below really freaked me out. Also, there were steaming piles of bear droppings, very fresh, all over the place. But there was no turning back. It had taken us four hours to hike in, and now it was getting dark. We were staying the night. 
The husband was a good husband back then, so he tried to calm my panic on the cliff. We'd been married for almost two years at this point, a beautiful time in our relationship, the time after the wedding but before we had a baby. We were best friends. We did everything together and hardly ever fought. This edge of a cliff camping was in the middle of a month-long road trip in our little car from Toronto to Newfoundland, the island of his birth. It had been an amazing month, except for this panic attack, me standing frozen in the wind, breathing so heavy, eyes wild. The husband coaxed me to sit down. He got out my old transistor radio and tuned it to the only station we could get out there, CBC Radio, the public broadcaster I work for. Questions, whatever happened to acid rain? Nobody talks about acid rain anymore. It's off the map. The husband made a fire and cooked up some towtons, this traditional Newfoundland bread. He poured molasses on the warm bread and gave me a cup of tea. He tucked my hair behind my ears, kissed my eyelids, one, then the other, and then the first one again. He made jokes about false advertising since I was supposed to be an experienced camper. He had it all under control in this crazy place on the edge of the North Atlantic. My anxiety started to disappear. My breathing slowed. He made me feel safe. That night, we slept in a tent that had to be tethered to a platform so we wouldn't blow away. I slept hard. The next day, when we were back in civilization, he told me why he hadn't slept nearly as well. In the middle of the night, he'd woken up to the sound of loud sniffing at the wall of our tent. It was a bear. A bear so close, he could feel its hot breath on his face. Slowly, the husband turned on his side and put all six foot two, 220 pounds of himself on top of me, completely covering me as best as he could. His heart was beating so loud, he worried the bear would hear it or I would wake up. After what felt like an eternity to him, the bear ambled away. I slept right through it all. Five-year-old Birdie loves this story. She loves how he says to her, Imagine the tent walls right here, and puts his hand in front of her face. Now, I'm the bear, and he blows a gust of wind into her face, and they both break out laughing. This is the part where I say, and your dad just put his whole big body right around mom's body to protect her, so the bear would get him first. That's right, I did. That's right, he did. The Swings. I never feel more divorced, more alone, 
than when I'm at the playground with Birdie, especially in this first year. It doesn't matter which park I go to in this city, it's always the same. Each child seems to have two parents, one with another smaller child strapped to their body. Hun, can you please get some sunscreen on Pilot or he'll burn? Banjo, come here and get a seaweed snack from your mom. God, I'm being such an asshole right now. But honestly, sometimes I hate these people with their intact families. I hate that I sit here on a bench, alone, pretending to read a book, while Birdie plays happily with the other kids. Every once in a while, she looks up from what she's doing and gives me a wave. I wave back from behind my giant sunglasses. Hungover from spending the previous night dancing and drinking and doing karaoke till 4am, only to make the sharp 180 to motherhood by this afternoon. Here I am, sitting alone in this park, watching blissful domesticity as it buzzes around me. Cool fathers with their beards and skinny jeans, chatting easily with their lithe and stylish wives who hold lattes and complain about the quality of Mandarin being taught at the daycare. Why do they seem so effortless? Why are they just married and doing married stuff and that's okay? If it's really that easy, why couldn't my own husband do it? I study them. These couples don't look any happier than we did. Some of them look less happy even, and all of them look way less into each other than we were. I mean, some of the women sound brittle and exasperated every time they say anything to their husbands. Most of the men seem distracted and disinterested. Hang on, no, all of the men seem distracted and disinterested. Not in their wives necessarily, but in life in general maybe? They all look like they want to be someplace else. I recognize these ghosts. I do not miss that part of marriage. The way you sink into those roles, whether you ever believed you would or not. Now I'm sitting on this bench with a little less longing, remembering instead the fun I had last night, how I woke up giddy and satisfied this morning, how I spent the early part of today lounging around my apartment, reading magazines and making espresso, napping, writing, all before the ex-husband dropped Bertie off mid-afternoon. It's not too bad a life. I may be settling into it even, but... Damn them, shit, will you look at that couple? They're sitting on two swings, side by side, holding hands and laughing. They look so into each other, don't they? And now everything inside of me starts to crumble. Crumple. I miss the ex-husband so suddenly, so painfully, so desperately. I feel the hot tears as they flash flood my eyes. God, I miss the swings. The swinging part of love. You're listening to Alone, a love story. Written by me, Michelle Parisi. It's a CBC original podcast. The story editor is Veronica Simmons. Alone is mixed and produced by me and Veronica in our hometown of Toronto. I've got a lot more to share with you at cbc.ca slash alone. The stories behind the story I'm telling, photos, and a lot about music. Stick with me. 
I want to tell you about how I became the saddest optimist. Hey, there's another CBC original podcast I want to tell you about. Personal Best, a reckless, do-it-yourself approach to self-improvement, hosted by two of the funniest and nicest guys you'll ever have in your ears, Rob Norman and Andrew Norton. In each episode, they help people tackle weird, eccentric, petty, and sometimes totally embarrassing everyday hang-ups. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to Alone. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.